Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. When we lived in Florida, my wife and I were going to this little church. It was about 5,000 people crammed into a renovated Walmart. And uh, I was in the back in the connection center toward the end of service. The band came out. They started playing. And there's a guy back there named Barry. And Barry looks at me and he says, man, I love this. And I said, you know what, Barry, I'm, I'm actually surprised to hear you say that. Because typically this kind of music isn't so popular with uh, your generation. Right? Like, cause you think, like, you think our music is loud? Like, this band, like, when they led worship, it was like they were trying to put worship on for the astronauts on the space station and succeeding. You know, like, you talk about, like, feeling the music. Like, this is a whole other level of, it's like, yes, that guitarist is actually strumming my soul. It was so loud. And Barry looks at me and goes, no. Uh, no, no, because I'm in my 70s. For me, worship music is hymns sung a cappella style. This is not my thing. That's not why I'm here. I love this. Seeing young people with their hands in the air, worshiping Jesus passionately, because that's what it's all about. Barry gets it. So I'm going to tell you something that goes against everything that you've been taught, trained, and conditioned to believe by the world and society around you. It's not about you. The best way to wreck your life is to make it about you. Look, I love you, but man, if you are the center of your universe, that is a sad little universe. The very core foundation of who we are in Jesus. What sets us apart from the world around us, distinguishes us from the culture of this world, is that we don't live for ourselves, that we're not about ourselves. The very foundation of our identity in Jesus is that it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And Jesus calls us to more than being about just ourselves. He says, if you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, you got to die to yourself. you got to deny yourself on a daily basis. No one who knows Jesus lives for themselves. You just, you can't do it. You cannot experience and encounter the majesty and the wonder of the almighty God who descended the throne of heaven to live life like us, only perfect, and suffered and died on a cross in our place to pay our price so that we would no longer be objects of wrath, but be adopted into the family of God, made children of God, and that we would be covered not in our goodness, but in his righteousness. That he gives us a new, makes us a new creation. He gives us a new identity and a new life in him. Not because of our performance or the quality of our lives, but because of the immeasurable, incomprehensible love which he has lavished upon us in his grace. You cannot experience that Jesus and live all about you. In fact, you can't know that Jesus and be some about you. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing, not do some things, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. 
but in humility count others more significant than yourself. It's not about you. See, the reason the Bible is so strong in its opposition to our criticizing others and our complaining is at the heart of every complaint is what about me? My view, my way, my thoughts, the way I like it, my personal preferences, what about me? And there is nothing more antithetical to the gospel than the question, what about me? Now, the tricky thing about complaining is complaining is really ugly, but we have found really fancy clothes to put it in. So we can make it look nice and dress it up so it doesn't seem like it's complaining. No, no, I'm not complaining. I'm just, I'm saying this for them. No, you are not. They are not your reason. They're your excuse. You know how I know if you didn't agree with them, would you be sharing it? Nope. And one of the things that's so disturbing, I guess, is how as Christians, how quickly we complain about worship. That's one of the biggest areas, right? Music is very stylized. It's very subjective. Lots of different opinions. But the readiness with which Christians complain about worship indicates that we don't even understand what worship is. Do you know why we sing at the beginning of every service? It wasn't a big part of the liturgy of the early church. Do you know why we do it? I'll tell you this. It's not because you all are American Idol candidates. Look, I love you, but this is not a judgment, okay, because my voice is like an over-medicated rhinoceros in a trash compactor, right? I sing in the car. My four-year-old's like, Daddy, could we just let Mommy sing? Because you are bad at it. (laughs) Thanks, bud. Not a judgment. The reason that we sing, the reason that we start with worship is that the purpose of worship is to focus our hearts and minds on who Jesus is. It is to take the attention of our hearts and minds off of ourselves. And we have to start with that every week because every week we have to be reminded that it's not about you. Nobody who lives for the kingdom, lives for themselves. And that is what is ca- the characterization of our unsung hero for today. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to start in Acts 16.1, then we're going to jump over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to look at the most unsung of all unsung heroes that you can possibly imagine ever in the history of ever. Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconum. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. After his conversion, Paul goes on several missionary journeys, traveling across the world, preaching the gospel. And planting churches. On his first journey, he comes to this town called Lystra where he meets a man named Timothy. Timothy's mother is a Jewish believer. His dad is a Greek. Put a pin in that. We'll come back to it later. Timothy's about 16 years old at the time. At the time, Timothy is well known amongst the believers in Lystra all the way to Iconum. I know that's super exciting for you. You're like, wow, I never would have guessed that. Iconum is 40 miles from Lystra. At this point in history, if you, I mean, if you had some huff and puff to your step, you'd make it about 20 miles in a day. So this is two days travel. 
As a 16-year-old kid, Timothy is not just well thought of in his local church community. He is well known in the entire town that he is from, all the way to two days travel from where he lives. Today, that's international. Right? You can cover the whole globe in two days. That is an impressive young man. So Paul sees him and Paul's like, yeah, I want you to be my disciple. Hey, come follow me. Timothy agrees. Here's the problem. Timothy's dad is a Greek, which means Timothy would not have been circumcised. Quick disclaimer, not trying to be crass here, but it's really easy for us to just kind of blow past significant things in Scripture and just skip over them. And I don't want to do that because this is a real story. Life happens in those details that you dive into. Can you imagine how this conversation would have gone? Like, hey, Timothy, uh, I want you to follow me. Okay, first thing, though, I got to chop off part of you. Uh, what now? It's fine. Everybody does it. Oh, Really? No, well, most of them do it at birth because that's traditionally when you would do circumcision and all God's men said, amen, amen. right? Because the older you get, the less you want sharp objects in that area, okay? <laughs> traditionally, a good Jewish family was going to circumcise their child on the eighth day. You did it as a baby. It was less painful. It, took, it healed faster, and you don't remember it. That's the big win. You don't remember it. Timothy's a teenager, Okay? And Paul's like, hey, uh, so we're going to do this. And he's like, oh, good. Right? See, in order for Timothy to enter Jewish temples, he would have to be circumcised because that was a requirement by law. So if he's going to minister to the people Paul's ministering to, this is a part of the requirement. So step one to being recruited. Like, look, if I told you, like, hey, you've all been called to serve Jesus. Let me just get my knife out. Who's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go far away from you because that's crazy. Uh, so that's Timothy, right? He's just like, let's do this thing. Anybody ever start a job and have a bad first day at work? Guess who wins that contest every time? Timothy, right? Here's your new boss, Slice. <laughs> Worst orientation ever. Right? Can you imagine complaining to Timothy about, man, it's just hard to get to church on Sundays because I'm so busy. It's my one day I can sleep in. But let me tell you a story. Paul calls Timothy. despite the weight of what he's asking Timothy to do. Timothy does it. Now you might think, this seems odd because Timothy's not really an unsung hero, is he? Right, you've got two books, letters of the Bible written to him, pretty well-known guy. So how exactly does this dude qualify as an unsung hero? I'm so glad you asked. He doesn't. Timothy is not our unsung hero. He's our setup. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So Timothy has cried in front of Paul. That tells us something really important. I don't know if you know, men don't typically cry in front of other men. Like there are rules as a guy when you are allowed societally, socially to cry. The death of a close family member or friend, at your wedding, at the birth of your first child, of either gender, right? So if you're the first boy, you can cry. First girl, you can cry. If you have a second boy, it's like suck it up, buttercup. Man, you've already done this. <laughs> you can cry when your kid goes off to school, to college. You can cry when your daughter gets married. 
You can cry if you lose a limb, if you step on a Lego, or during that scene in The Patriot when he's getting ready to go off to war and his daughter hasn't talked to him in years because she's mad at him, runs to him and goes, Daddy, don't go. I'll say anything. Please just don't go. If you don't cry during that, I'm not sure what happened to your soul, but you should probably get it looked at. Right? There are not a whole lot of socially acceptable places for a man to cry in front of other men. There are certain circumstances where there is permissible, but you've got to play that card real rarely. The fact that Timothy's cried in front of Paul demonstrates the depth and the strength of the relationship that they have. Paul says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. You know who talks like that? Fathers, I don't need anything from you. I don't need you to do anything. Just seeing your face will fill me with joy. The longer you go as a dad without seeing your kid, the more just seeing them. This is not just for dads, but the more just seeing them fills you with joy. Paul says, I pray for you night and day, constantly. Who are you praying for like that? Where you could boldly say, with God as my witness, I pray for you constantly, night and day. And who's praying for you that way? Your mama don't count. <gasps> he said, mama's prayers aren't important. No, he did not. He did not say that. Listen, <laughs> I'm, nobody ever believes me when I said this. I think I'm joking. I'm not joking. I am terrified of public speaking. Okay? If you gave me a choice of career paths, like ministry was not on the list, it'd be like, hey, you can scrape barnacles off of rich people's boats, or you can do ministry. I'd be like, give me the barnacle thing. Let's go. I don't even swim that well. Let's just do it. This is not where I would have chosen to end up. You know why I'm here? Mama was praying for me to be a preacher before I was born. Look, I don't care if you believe in free will or not. I can tell you free will is not stronger than mama's prayers. <laughs> Living proof. <laughs> but you didn't cultivate that relationship. It was given to you. Who have you cultivated a relationship with that is praying for you like this? You see how personal? When Paul writes this, do you feel how personal and rich that relationship is as he writes it? If you look at the early church and then you look at the church today, you ever wonder like, it seems like things are different. Anybody ever kind of get that vibe? They are. Here's why. We try to mass produce discipleship. Here's a class. Here's a program. Here's an expert. Right, the traditional approach to growing people in their relationship with Jesus is like, well, you got to make the pastors do it. Right, because the traditional view is, if it doesn't come from a pastor, it doesn't count. Despite the fact that the Bible regularly and repeatedly rejects this thinking, like in Corinthians, Paul says, "I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you because you guys are bragging about who did the baptism instead of who you were baptized into." You've missed the point of the whole thing. You think it's special because it came from me? He goes, no, I planted a seed. Apollos watered it. God made it grow. The one who plants, the one who waters, that means nothing. Only God who makes it grow. And you continue to put the person on the pedestal rather than to focus on the one that they're doing the work for. So the whole point of scriptures, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Look, if there's any power, any meaning, any value to what I say, it's because I'm not the one saying it. Right? If the words that come out of my mouth are from me, please ignore them every single time. I'm an idiot. I got no right to tell you anything about your life. What gives it value is it comes from the Holy Spirit. Do you think that that spirit is any less powerful or meaningful if it comes from the person sitting next to you than it does the person on the stage? How dare you? 
How dare you demean the Spirit of God into thinking it has to come through a special person to be meaningful. It is not the one who does the work that matters. It's the one they're working for. It is not the laborer. It's the king that counts. We get into this mindset. This traditional mindset. It has to be these special people. It couldn't possibly be from me. That's the difference. In the early church, they viewed discipleship as being the responsibility of the entire community. Parents trained their children. Older men and women trained younger men and women. It was intensely personal. It was intensely relational. And every Christian who followed Jesus took ownership in it because every Christian is called to it. There is no program, no system, no leadership structure that will absolve you of the responsibility to obey Jesus when he says, go make disciples. This is a call for all Christians, for all who would follow after Jesus. You see, the Christian life, it's not a sprint and it's not a marathon. Verse 4. Verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know how unsung these heroes are? (laughs) We had to go through all that just to get to their names. And this is the only time their names show up. Once. There is no story, no event in which they are described. We see them do nothing. We hear them say nothing. Their names are just recorded here. Everything we know about them is indirect. Wow, why are we talking about them? Because Lois and Eunice are Timothy's grandmother and mother. Timothy caught the attention of the most influential leader in the history of the church. Why? Because Lois had a sincere faith and she passed that faith on to her daughter. And then Eunice walked in that sincere faith and she passed it on to her son. So I want to take a minute, I want to just speak to single moms. For when you're here or you're watching online, One of the things the devil likes to do is to convince you that you're not qualified to do the work that God has called you to do. Who are you? What can you achieve? What can you really accomplish? Your situation's not perfect. You've made mistakes. How dare you think that you could do something great for the kingdom of God? Because what could you possibly do? Let me tell you this. In first century writing, the fact that the only thing we know about Timothy's dad is his nationality means he's not around. Maybe he died. Maybe he left. He is not present in Timothy's life. Eunice is a single mom. You know what she does? She reads the word with her son. She teaches it to him. She takes the faith that was handed to her by her mother. She holds on to that faith and she passes it on to her son. Timothy becomes one of the greatest, most important, most influential pastors in the history of the church because of his mother and grandmother investing in him. That's what you can do. Your situation may not be perfect. Your circumstances may be difficult. 
but don't think for a second that that can stop God from doing incredible things through you. I'm going to say this, so we're going to open this up to everybody. Don't worry about your season. Don't worry about your past. Don't worry about the obstacles in your way. Fan the flame of faith in your life and pass it on. You have no idea what God can do in you and through you when you hold the flame of faith and you pass it to the next generation. The Christian life, it's not a sprint. It's not a marathon. Pass the flame of faith. See, the world says life's all about you. Do what you want. Chase your dreams. Live for yourself. Focus on yourself. What you want. You have the right to be happy and to be whatever you want to be. If Lois and Eunice had subscribed to this thinking, their names would have been forgotten in time like grains of sand washed by the tides of time. We would never talk about them. We would never know them because they didn't subscribe to this, because they didn't make their life about themselves, because they didn't focus on themselves and live for themselves, but rather they poured themselves out for the glory of God and the good of others, which is what it means to be a Christian. Their names will never be forgotten in the kingdom of God. Their influence will be remembered for eternity. What if... The most important thing that you can do for the kingdom of God isn't what you do, it's who you raise. What if the greatest impact that you can have on this world for the glory of God isn't about what you do, it's about who you invest in? What if we actually lived what Jesus calls us to do, to deny ourselves and follow him? What if we lived life like it wasn't about us? Here's what happens. 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, all these people, they're being deceived and misled by false teachers, turned every which way back and forth, but not Timothy. You know why Timothy wasn't? The best way to identify deception is to know the truth. And Timothy knew the truth because his mom taught it to him, because his grandma taught it to him. Because they read the word with him, because they imparted that faith to him. Because church, faith is meant to be shared. And so if you are not pouring yourself out, if you are not giving of yourself to invest and to invest yourself in the next generation, you've missed the point. Every one of us is called to share our faith. It is the responsibility of all who follow Jesus. Right? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're called to make disciples for Jesus. One of my favorite questions that people ask, what does the church do for discipleship? The church is not a building. The church is not some spiritual few. The church is you. It's the body of believers. So let me ask you the question, what's the church doing for discipleship? Ask it in a mirror before you ask it to me. Leading people to grow and mature in their relationship with Jesus is the responsibility of all who follow after Jesus. Here's the thing, right? We all get older, right? I don't know if you know this or not, the death rate in America is running right around 100%. Right now it's your turn. You have a torch and you get to run the race. Right? The Bible regularly refers to the Christian life as a race. You're running the race. But you only run so many laps. And the more laps you run, the fewer laps you have left. You need to start thinking about what you're going to do with that torch when your turn is over. See, as we age, the world changes. Right? It starts with music. 
culture, technology, everything changes. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves getting bitter and frustrated by those changes. We try to cling on to the glory days of our past. But listen to me, church. Life only moves in one direction. And if you spend your life looking in the rearview mirror, you're going to wreck it. Those days aren't coming back. No matter how much you want them to, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you complain about it, they're not coming back. See, as we get older, there's a fork in the road. And either we start to go godly or we start to go grumpy. And the grumpy happens really easily. It's a subtle, very deceptive kind of thing. It just starts with a little bit of complaining, right? Maybe the world just starts changing faster and you're having a harder and harder time keeping up. This is different. You got to relearn that. You just kind of get lost and you get frustrated. It's understandable. But then you just start to complain a little bit. And a little more and a little more until complaining becomes your dominant thought. Then what happens is the grumpy old men get together in holy huddles and women and they feed each other's frustrations. Do you know what causes it? The difference between those who grow godly and those who grow grumpy? Spiritual constipation. Like, let's just be real honest. When you got up this morning, like, I'm going to go to church. We thought they were going to hear the word constipation. <laughs> Let me explain. As we get older, more experience, more faith goes in. But if we don't have a good outlet, we get backed up. And that feels uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. It makes us irritable. Right? The cure for growing grumpy is spiritual prunes. <laughs> you need to invest yourself in the next generation. Okay? You need someone who you can pour into, who you can invest in. So if you're older, I want you to hear this. I'm not trying to jab at you. I'm not trying to make fun of you because you are important. Most of history and society, the elders in the community were honored and esteemed above all else. In modern society, we've just gotten rid of that. Just completely lost it. What we like to do is to gather together with people like us, to huddle up with people in the same experience that we're in. When we first moved to Florida, I remember we went to this church, this big old church, and their like groups page wasn't like a page, it was like a book. And they're like, hey, if you're 30 and with kids and like tennis, this is your group. If you're like 30, you don't have kids, but you like tennis, this is your group. If you're 20 and your favorite video game is Call of Duty, this is your group. If you're 20 and you don't like video games, this is your group. Like, it was so specific. Like, this so, but that's what we like. We like to gather with people who are just like us. And look, there's, there's value in that. There's value with being in godly relationship with people in the same walk of life as you are. But if that's all you have, it's not enough. There are three key relationships to the Christian life. Those who are before you, those who walk with you, and those who are behind you. You need all three. You need someone who's pouring into you. Like a spiritual father who's invested, someone who's more mature in the relationship with Jesus, who can guide and advise you as you walk through life with them. Because they've experienced more of it than you have. You need those who walk with you, who encourage you, who challenge you as iron sharpens iron. That's godly community. And you need those who you turn and you pour into. Because I'll tell you this right now. Nothing will grow you faster and more effectively in your relationship with Jesus like trying to help someone else grow in theirs. 
One caveat, if you've been a Christian for less than a year, skip step three. Take a season and just be a sponge. Absorb. Surround yourself with godly people and just absorb. So hear me when I say this. If you're older, I'm not making fun of you. I'm not criticizing you. You have an important role. You have a very valuable thing that you bring. You have experience. You have wisdom. You have an understanding of the world because you've seen more of it. And most importantly, you've walked with Jesus longer than we have. So I'm going to say something to you that might sound hard, but I want you to know my heart in it. It's because we need you. It is because of the importance of the role. A church that glorifies and honors Jesus is a church that was interracial and intergenerational. The only people who want to listen to you complain are other grumpy old men. The more you complain, the more you just, eh, the world is different now, and that's dumb, and this is dumb, and this is stupid, and let me just tell you, the more you do that, the less anybody else wants to listen. Remember the movie Grumpy Old Men? You know, nobody wants from Walter Matthau advice. You know why? Nobody wants to become him. So I want you to think about this as you go through. It's so easy to post all of your feelings in a long, psychotic rant on Facebook. But what, think about what people see when they look at that. Like, hey, are they seeing, look at the wisdom and godliness of this person. I want to learn from them. Or they're going like, that guy's a psycho who probably licks peanut butter out of his toes. Like, don't be the second one. The more you complain, the less people want to listen. Please, I beseech you, do not ruin the influence that you have, the important role that you play in the community of the people of God by making it about you. Do not spend your later years looking in the rearview mirror, church. There's a reason the windshield is always bigger. We are meant to look forward. Look to the next generation. Look to those whose turn comes after yours because the Christian life, it's not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It's a relay. Your job is to carry the torch of faith during your turn and to hand it to the next generation for theirs. You have no idea the importance and the value of your role. This is not just like, hey, you're retired, I'm talking to you. If you're over 30, right, if the first number in your age is a three or more, you need to be thinking about this. Not just your running of the race, but the race that comes after you're done. What is it that you're leaving behind? What is it that you're investing? Who is it that you're helping challenge and grow in their journey with Jesus. We had this, uh, this men's group years ago. They're not here, so I can talk about them. Uh, <laughs> there's a Bible study, and the, the guys, some of the guys would come, from, would come to me and complain all the time. The young men in this church, they're a real problem. They don't want to grow in Jesus. They don't want to know Jesus because they don't want to come to our Bible study. I'm like, that's definitely what it is. They don't want to come to your Bible study. They must not love Jesus. So I'm like, okay, so you want young men to come to your Bible study? Yes. Your Bible study that meets at 10 o'clock in the morning on a work day? Yes. You, you don't see a problem with that? No. Okay. Uh, this is going great. Have you, have you invited some young men? No. Have you talked to young men, like, ever? No. 
I'm real, do you think that young men are like mushrooms that just grow up out of the ground? Like, you look grumpy, teach me how to be like you. Like, how do you think this works? Here's what I'm gonna tell you if you're older. Don't wait for the people to come to you. Paul is the most influential leader in the history of the church. Paul goes to Timothy. If you're the mature one, if, you're the, if you've been around the block a few times, you've walked with Jesus for a few years, you take the initiative. Look for someone and say, hey, I see potential in you. I would like to be a part of your life. I would like to invest in that and help you grow. You'll be surprised by how many people are really excited about that idea. I want you to understand how important this is. The church I went to in high school was 250 people. Our youth group, our high school youth group was 60 kids. 60. We got together like every day. We were so close. It was like a family of, it was incredible, the love for Jesus that everybody had. When we went to summer camps and conferences, they thought we were the Pentecostal church. We were so loud and rowdy for Jesus. <laughs> Man, like, it was amazing. Of those 60 kids that were in high school when I was there, 12 went to Bible college to pursue full-time ministry. Do you know how many are still walking with Jesus? Like six. Like six. On fire, passionate, loving Jesus. Six are left. You know what all six have in common? They had a Paul. They had a Eunice. They had a Lois. They had an adult, typically one that wasn't just their parents, who was invested in their spiritual life. Do you understand the importance of the role that you play as a mature believer? You may be the difference between whether or not they are here in 10 years. the importance that you have. You cannot even imagine the work that God will do you through you when you are faithful to live for him. So if you're younger, here's my challenge to you. I want you to look, seek, and pray for a spiritual parent who can invest in your life. Take the next two weeks, pray about it, think about it, seek it out, start looking for people. Like, who do I want to pick to do that? Go tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, I want you to buy me breakfast and teach me about Jesus. For those of you who are older, you've been around this thing a couple more times. Paul goes to Timothy. Take the initiative. Look for someone. Invite them in. Invest in them. You say, yeah, but I just, I don't know the Bible that well. Cool. Making disciples, it's not about being an instructor, it's about being an example. It's not listen and learn, it's come and see. Who are you investing in? Who are you pouring yourself into? Who are you praying for night and day that they would know and grow in Jesus? This is the responsibility, this is the call of every Christian. To know to grow, and to follow Jesus. Who's helping you know and grow in him? And who are you helping know and grow in him? Because disciples of Jesus are called to make disciples for Jesus.
This is not a marathon. It's a relay. So who are you going to pass the torch of your faith to? Who are you pouring into that they will be here serving Jesus and living for him when you're gone? Whose turn comes next? That's what we ask as we start running out of laps in our own race. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And Jesus doesn't call us to believe in him. Jesus calls us to follow him. You cannot follow if you're standing still. So who are you helping? And who's helping you? See, it ain't about you. It's about the one who did this. The king who descended from heaven and bled and died for us. If you get one of the cups on the way in there, sitting over the back of the tables there, you can go grab those. As we take communion together, as we remember this, is what it's about. This is who we live for. This is who governs and leads every choice, every decision, every attitude of our hearts. It is not about you. It is all about Jesus because Jesus is the one who gives us life. Because Jesus is the one who gives us hope. And out of his great love for us, Jesus' body was broken on our behalf so that we could be spared the price of sin that we deserved. So we remember that as we take it together. The cup represents his blood. Blood represents life. The life of Jesus that was poured out for us that we would have new life in him. The question that each of us should ask ourselves, who are you pouring your life out for? Let's take it together. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We seek you. That we would be constantly growing in you. God, I pray that you would just mold us that each and every day we become more like you, that we would not just be following you, but we would be striving to help others follow you as well, that we would live not for ourselves, but for you and for your kingdom because yours is the glory, yours is the power, yours is the honor forever and ever. I place people in front of us that can help us grow and that we can help grow for your glory and your kingdom. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace.